Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. The YWCA of Columbus has an annual event coming up that recognizes and honors select women who are making a difference in the Columbus community. We'll hear more about that, then I'll talk with Dr. Chaz Dabbs. He's a bariatric surgeon at Mount Carmel Hospital who has a great deal of knowledge about and insight into the obesity epidemic. January is Human Trafficking Prevention Month. Doug Petcash from our sister station, 10TV, has a conversation with Michelle Hannon, who is the Anti-Human Trafficking Program Director for the Salvation Army of Central Ohio. He'll also have updates on the Ohio legislature and more. First up on Columbus Perspective... The YWCA of Columbus has a pretty big event coming up. For nearly 40 years, they've honored a select group of women of achievement who embody the mission and commitment to empower women. They're individuals who impact their professions, uplift their communities, fight bias, and inspire others. The 2024 class has been selected, and we are honored today to be joined by Liz Brown. She's the president and CEO of the YWCA Columbus. Hi, Liz. Thanks for joining us here on Columbus Perspective. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Well, we have quite a list of honorees that are pretty darn impressive to dig into Mm -hmm. here. Before we get started on that, though, can you give us a little more about Women of Achievement? Um, what, What is it that brings these women together to be honored this way? So Women of Achievement is really our hallmark event of the year that celebrates women who throughout their careers have lived into our mission. Our mission is eliminating racism and empowering women. Um, YWCA has been a part of the Columbus community since 1886, and Women of Achievement was begun in 1986. Um, to further that 100-year-old at the time um, mission. And over that time, we have celebrated um, on our stage some of the most incredible, accomplished, but importantly, mission-driven women in this community. And when you say mission-driven, again, we're talking about people that are empowering women and, and, you know, kind of uplifting communities, Tell us a little bit, if you would, about each of this year's honorees. Absolutely. So um, when we say mission-driven, we mean driving towards our mission, which is eliminating racism and empowering women. So that's the filter through which uh, we really uh, select. And it's 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 not me. It's our um, selection committee that does this and really filters um, uh, and, and uplifts these women to celebrate. So this year, our six women are... Um, Kareen Berger uh, with J.P. Morgan Chase, um, and she's a dedicated community advocate on top of her day job, um, really dedicated to ensuring equitable access to banking services and education and opportunity. Um, uh, Demetrius Neely is executive director of um, the King Arts Complex, where she really leads one of our most admired cultural institutions. Under Demetrius's leadership in particular, King Arts has um, really made a mark on our community um, in terms of equity, equity and the arts. 
Um, Dr. Elaine Richardson is um, a professor at Ohio, the Ohio State University. Um, she's known as Dr. E, and she is incredible. She's founded all kinds of things to uplift the community, the Education Foundation for Freedom, the Columbus Women and Girls Fest, the list goes on. Um, Renee Shoemate is at AEP Ohio. She is also a former board chair for YWCA Columbus and um, lives our mission um, every day, really towards uh, being a catalyst for positive change in our community. Ola Snow um, is Chief Human Resources Officer at Cardinal Health, Health, excuse me, and she's dedicated her, her career to really um, at work and outside of work, helping ensure people are welcome, safe, seen, and heard, um, and has created a lot of Cardinals programs to that end. And then finally, Erin Upchurch, who is Executive Director of Kaleidoscope Youth Center. Erin um, uh, is an integrative social work practitioner, and she also uh, really lives our mission every day at Kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope serves and supports LGBTQIA plus youth and young adults, and Erin leads that work admirably and often up against um, a lot of um, uh, friction and hate in our uh, broader world that, that she and the young people she serves deal with. We're talking to Liz Brown, the president and CEO of YWCA Columbus. Every year they honor women of achievement. And Liz, there's another category. These are women on the rise. And I understand we have a deadline for nominations for women on the rise coming up. Can you tell us a little more about that? We are very excited that our window for nominations for Women on the Rise is open. It closes on February 2nd. So if you know anyone, go to YWCA.org and nominate her for a Woman on the Rise. Women on the Rise are emerging leaders in our community who are doing great work in their workplaces and in our community in alignment with the mission of eliminating racism and empowering women. This program began in uh, 2020, and it was a way to honor women at uh, probably an earlier stage in their career than our women of achievement are, and just really integrate them into that celebration to recognize the way in which uh, women are contributing all across their careers to making our community better and to living out YWCA's mission. Now, you said um, the word celebration, and I was about to ask, when you have all of these amazing women to honor, you've got to throw a party, right? That's right, Kate. <laughs> and I understand that's coming up in April. Yes, on April 11th, we throw a party to celebrate them. And I want to emphasize, Kate, that we also throw this party um, to raise money for the incredible work that YWCA does. Um, we are a housing, education, and social justice organization. And by celebrating these women, we are also raising critical dollars to do our work year over year in the community. Is anyone invited to come and be a part of the celebration? Is that something we can buy tickets to? Yes, you can buy tickets at ywcacolumbus.org uh, backslash WOA. W-O-A is WOA. 
that's an easy one to remember. It's Thursday, April 11th in the Battelle Grand Ballroom at the Greater Columbus Convention Center, the 2024 Women of Achievement Luncheon. And there's so much going on at the YWCA, like you said, the incredible work that you're doing. Liz, do you have, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you have other things going on. Is there anything else you'd like to, to highlight or talk about today? Um, I would just thank you for the opportunity for us to talk about this event because it is, as I said, at the core of supporting our work across the board. Um, We provide housing to families um, who are in um, the crisis of homelessness. We provide permanent supportive housing to women. We um, offer childcare education services across 22 sites in our county. And we are a bold voice uh, for social justice every day of the year. This event not only celebrates six wonderful women that you want to learn more about, but it also funds all of that great work. And if you'd like more information, again, that website is? YWCAColumbus.org backslash W-O-A. Excellent. Women of Achievement coming up in April. The YWCA always looking for your support. Get on their website, learn more about what they do, and make a donation if you can. They're doing amazing work in our community. Liz Brown, the CEO, president and CEO, that is, of YWCA Columbus. I thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to celebrating this year's Women of Achievement in April. And of course, we now know we've got just a few more days until that February 2nd deadline to nominate Women on the Rise. It's all on the WISE website. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Kate, very much. When you take a walk around your neighborhood, and notice all the things that make it feel like home. Like all the houses lie neatly together in a row. Or your neighbor, Miss Rita, who always waves at you when you drive down the street. Or that movie theater in the strip mall that might look a little worn down, but has the best popcorn you've ever tasted. One thing might be a little harder to notice because somewhere tucked in that neat row of houses is hunger. It could be your next door neighbor or your coworker, or your daughter's friend from school. Because over 30 million Americans don't know where their next meal is coming from. Hunger lives in neighborhoods all around us, but it doesn't have to. Together, we can provide a billion meals by 2030, because everyone should be welcome at the table. Learn more at nourishingneighbors.com. Let's break the cycle of hunger, together. One in four Americans today are living with a disability. I'm one of them. I care deeply about creating a world we can all fully participate in, free from stigma, misperceptions, and barriers. And we've got a trusted ally on our side, an organization we can rely on, Easter Seals. Rooted in communities nationwide, Easter Seals helps empower millions of people, regardless of age or disability, through its life-changing services and powerful advocacy. Today and every day, Easter Seals is leading the way to full equity, inclusion, and access to healthcare, employment, and education for people with disabilities, families, and communities. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Learn more and get involved at EasterSeals.com.
Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Electronic highway sign humor is coming to an end. You can't be funny on those signs anymore. Have you seen the many headlines and social posts that say it's the end of the road for funny electronic highway signs? Like these viral messages meant to encourage safe driving. The Post claimed the federal government is making sign writers be more pedestrian. But is the Federal Highway Administration really banning funny messages on electronic highway signs? Let's verify. Our sources are the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Register, and the 11th edition of the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices for Streets and Highways. The Highway Administration has a road trip worthy 1,100-page manual for every type of sign you see on the highway, including electronic ones. On December 19th, the Highway Administration released an update that says, messages that are intended to be humorous should not be used as they might be misunderstood. A Highway Administration spokesperson clarified to Verify that the update is just a recommendation, not a dead end, and does not include a ban on humor or pop culture references. Adding state transportation agencies should emphasize keeping drivers' attention on the road while using signs for safety campaigns. So, no, the federal government is not banning funny messages on electronic highway signs. But they are asking sign writers to pump the brakes when the update goes into effect in 2026. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett, and it seems like every time you listen to a news story about health, it has something to do with obesity. Obesity is a big problem in our country. It leads to so many different complications for your health, like diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, sleep apnea also. It's estimated about a half a million deaths per year could be attributed to obesity. It's the leading cause of preventable death in the United States. And it can increase, obesity that is, can increase your risk of premature death by up to 250%. Like I said, it's a preventable cause of death. And because of that, we're talking today with Dr. Chaz Dabbs. He's a bariatric surgeon at Mount Carmel Hospital here in Columbus. His expertise and knowledge on this topic is ours to share for the next few moments. Dr. Dabbs, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First off, I'm, I'm curious, what, um, what is your medical background in terms of your um, experience in the field, and, and what got you into the bariatric area of healthcare? Sure. So uh, I kind of came to my specialty as a surgeon through sort of a strange pathway. Um, my background is actually in mental health. So I studied counseling and family therapy in college, and I planned to be a practicing psychologist and uh, just kind of fell out of love with that field and decided instead to go to medical school thinking, you know, I'd try to find a different way in the world. And, uh, you know, you don't go to medical school with that background and have people assume that you're going to wind up as a surgeon. Uh, but I loved, uh, I loved surgery and uh, doing that kind of work with my hands and, you know, being able to kind of create a very efficient uh, change and cure for my patients. So I wind up as a surgeon with a background in mental health care and uh, through a long series of very interesting happenstances and events, I wind up 
uh, with a practice doing bariatric surgery. And I kind of feel like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Uh, cause I think the reality is that, uh, obesity and, uh, body image issues and mental health is so, uh, sort of inextricably entwined together, uh, that it's nice to, you know, be in a field where I'm still kind of using the background information and things that I learned way back in undergrad, uh, and letting that make me a better surgeon. It sounds like a very sort of well-rounded approach to this specific field of healthcare. And before we go any further, I do want to kind of get your definition. When we say bariatric surgery, there's more than one option in, in that arena, aren't there? Yeah. So, you know, for bari- bariatric, you know, that word essentially is saying that we're treating obesity and then the metabolic and medical disorders associated with obesity. Uh, and then, you know, surgery, we're basically narrowing it down to focusing on uh, the surgical treatments, though there certainly are other medical treatments for obesity that are becoming very popular and in the news right now quite a bit. Those being things like semaglutide injections, the Ozempic that we hear about a lot from the celebrities. Yeah. Okay. And then when we get to the the actual surgery, there's a difference between the actual mechanics, I guess you'd say, between, say, a gastric sleeve and a gastric bypass procedure. Can you kind of shed some light on that for us? Certainly. Uh, so those are the two most uh, prominently done surgeries in America and the rest of the Western world. Um they have different ups and downs and a lot of people, you know, especially people who watch some of the TV shows that are sort of popular. um, There's a lot of oversimplification that's done in how to decide between one procedure or the other. Uh, But to try to keep it very brief, uh, the sleeve gastrectomy is a restrictive procedure. So it's primary function in helping people treat their obesity and metabolic disorders is by making the stomach much, much smaller, therefore creating restriction. So it's difficult to overeat, but also there are hormonal changes generated by removing that portion of the stomach that affect uh, satiety or um, the word we would use would be uh, appetite. So it's kind of appetite suppressing and also makes it difficult to overeat as well. The Roux-en-Y gastric bypass uh, is restrictive also because, again, we're changing the size of the stomach pretty considerably. But then it also has a component of malabsorption that is intentional, where we're essentially making it so that the person does not draw in all the nutrients, carbs, and fat from the things that they're eating due to the way that we've rerouted the intestines. Both sound like pretty major procedures to have. Is, is it is that true, or are these are these procedures uh, kind of evolving so that you can any of it be done on an outpatient basis? Sure. So the again, this is a question that requires some sort of subtlety to discuss because to say that they're not major you know, would make the bariatric surgeon sound like somebody who doesn't take their job very seriously. Mm. Uh, And I certainly do. And we focus on, you know, excellence and expertise in what we're doing. I think 
to speak about it correctly would be to understand that they're becoming they're very common and we have really refined our technique in order to allow these surgeries to be done uh, quickly uh, for the sake of the patients so they're not spending a lot of time on the operating room table and then getting people out of the hospital as quickly as possible since being in the hospital is generally not most people's first choice nor necessarily the safest place to recover from much of anything mm-hmm. um, and yes we have started doing uh, some bariatric surgeries as an outpatient even uh, at, this is done at some other centers in the country uh, and we are doing them as well and Along with this, I think it's important to point out that these are not procedures that you can just call up, make an appointment, and have done. There is a lot of lead-up to a potential bariatric surgery in terms of not just physical medicine, but also some some counseling and other things that come into play to make sure that a candidate is the correct candidate for this type of, of procedure, right? That's correct. You can't just sort of walk in and pull one off the shelf and have one. This is definitely something that takes uh, consideration and prep. Uh, The reason that bariatric surgery is as safe as it is in this country is because of the excellent work done by a lot of people to create programs for how do we get you know, the patient from walking in our door to surgery safely so that they can get a safe uh, and also very effective outcome. So there is an entire process. It does a little bit change patient to patient, uh, also depending on insurance company requirements. But we have mandatory uh, psychological evaluation, dietary and nutrition classes, and uh, follow-up available for all of those things as well. Dr. Dabbs, what would you say, in your opinion, in your expert observation of, of American society and your work as a physician in this field, what would you say is responsible for sort of the seeming explosion of obesity rates in our country over the past few decades. It seems that we are just hearing more and more and the numbers keep going up. Sure. Well, this is a topic that there's a lot of discussion about. I don't know if anybody knows the exact smoking gun to point at, Uh, but I would actually blame uh, the Industrial Revolution in Europe in the 1700s for being what really probably kicked off the obesity epidemic in the 21st century. Uh, The way the human body, you know, our genetics don't change that much generation to generation. It will take a long time for us to get used to a completely different lifestyle. And in the 1700s, you have the invention of uh, electricity being used uh, in people's homes and in businesses, Uh, the factory, the factory farm, the idea of third shift work. And uh, motor vehicles all start to become developed. And then you get the second industrial revolution where we really get cars coming off the line. And what that did is completely change the way humans as a species live. I mean, for our entire history of a couple hundred thousand years leading up until the mid 1850s, 
it took 90% of our population to generate the food required for us to sustain ourselves. Now, I, you know, I saw a statistic somewhere, I'm sorry, I can't give you a reference that it takes roughly five to 10% of our population to generate the food that we need to sustain our population, which leaves a lot of other time for people to do other things. And that's great, but we experience food in plenty uh, which is not normal for our genetic code. The animal that we were built to be is a hunter-gatherer on its feet, 18 hours a day, moving from place to place, trying its best to get eke out in existence. Um, and now, you know, we don't have to walk places. We can ride places. We can work into the wee hours of the night rather than observing a sort of appropriate sleep cycle, which we know is definitely deleterious to our uh, weight. Uh, we have the ability to have jobs where you sit all day. And again, for up until about 150 years ago, these things were essentially non-existent. It sounds like life got easier and maybe a little too easy for some in this is the price we're paying for it now. Yeah, just different. Again, you know, we're an animal that's built to handle a certain environment. Um, and things have changed so rapidly. So, I mean, you know, the, the phone, I mean, for crying out loud, the phone was basically the same invention from Alexander Graham Bell until 1982 when it became a wireless object. And now... You know, the phone is just, uh, to quote a comedian, Gary Goldman, the phone is just a seldom used app on my phone. <laughs> that is so true. Dr. Chaz Dabbs is a bariatric surgeon at Mount Carmel Hospital here in Columbus, and his wealth of knowledge on the topic of obesity in America and now the really effective treatments that do exist for people who have tried weight loss methods that do not work for them, for people who are dealing with the major side effects that obesity can bring in terms of other health issues, comorbidities, I believe is what doctors call them, is is really uh, remarkable. Dr. Dabbs, what are some of the requirements for a person to even be eligible, potentially, for bariatric surgery? Well, the current standards, uh, which are probably going to shift somewhat over the next five to 10 years uh, would be for the patient to have a BMI of 40 or higher or a BMI higher than 35 with obesity-related comorbidities. And those are specifically defined as uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obstructive sleep apnea, or type 2 diabetes. Okay. That's a, a pretty daunting list, and I would imagine for someone in that position, again, who has tried, and we hear so much, especially this time of year, it's, oh, I failed at my New Year's resolution. Now what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and certainly, I, I would, you know, venture to say, I'm sure you'd agree that our culture, uh, our entertainment, uh, you know, we're constantly bombarded with images of bodies and ideal supposedly bodies and things like that. So that, you know, that comes into play a lot. But for someone who is considering 
that maybe their option or only option right now is to look into bariatric surgery. Um, what what advice do you have for that person? Okay. Well, you certainly touch on a, a big topic because the whole idea of sort of body positivity um, and moving our culture a little bit away from sort of uh, obsession with appearance is, you know, very much kind of ongoing as we speak. Um, and I would hope, I guess I would say I never really would want a patient to be looking into bariatric surgery for that reason. Um, my, so the question was, you know, what is my advice? Um, to focus on trying to gain health, uh, that, you know, this isn't something that you do, you know, as you kind of said, oh, you know, I failed my new year's resolution again. Uh, I just, you know, I can't be healthy. I've hit an age where I can't lose weight as easily as I used to, or, you know, you know, whatever. I think that as we've talked, I hope you kind of get the fact that, um, physically and genetically, we're fighting a bit of an uphill battle against our own creations um, and the lifestyle that we've sort of created as a culture. And that what I would want for people as advice to start is to just say why you're choosing this and to choose it in an effort to live a healthy and more fulfilling life going forward. It has nothing to do with liking the way you look in the mirror. Um, my hope is that my patients like the way they like what they see before surgery and like what they see after surgery, because um, at least in my experience, uh, I don't think that people tend to make major life changes for the better from a place of shame or hating themselves. I want my patients to love themselves enough to make a major life change so that they can have a good and healthy life. Dr. Chaz Dabbs, if you weren't with us earlier, shared that when he began his medical career, his medical education, he was focused on mental health. And I think that's extremely evident. What a uh, what an attitude, what a wonderful attitude that is for you to bring to your practice and to your patients, because absolutely, it's it's not about how you look, it's how you feel, and it's about how healthy you are. Dr. Debs, I so appreciate your time today and your wisdom and, and uh, knowledge on this topic. I think we could probably go on for many more hours, but <laughs> but unfortunately, we, we are out of time. But thank you again, Dr. Chaz Dabbs from Mount Carmel's Bariatric Surgery Program. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Every 40 seconds, a child is reported missing. That's 2,000 children every single day. It's a heart-wrenching reality that we can no longer ignore. Find the Children is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping find missing kids. You can be a part of their mission by donating your unwanted vehicle, running or not. Call 1-800-294-0222. We guarantee that you will receive the maximum tax deduction. We provide fast, free pickup with 24-hour response. Call 1-800-294-0222. Find the Children provides crucial resources to help find missing children and educational materials to teach kids how to recognize and avoid predators. Our recovery programs have a proven track record of reuniting kids with their families. It's time to act. Donate your unwanted or unused car. Help us build a world where every child is safe. Pick up the phone and call 1-800-294-0222. Together, we can bring these kids home safely. 
This advertisement was paid for in partnership with Cars R Us and Find the Children. The YMCA is just a starting line for the true self blooms only when we find our purpose, what makes us tick below the surface. My why is diversity in unity, a safe space in my community, living with sincerity, giving every day my everything. With my why, I stand strong, seen and supported all along. It's a million faces in a mirror and everyone belongs. Find your why. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. Young people are leaving foster care at the age of 18 with little support and few skills. The National Fund for Foster Children partners with individuals, businesses, churches, and civic groups to provide mentorship, training, and assistance to foster children. Teach a young person a new skill or help them with homework. You don't need to be a foster parent to help a foster child. To find out how you can help, go to fosterchildrenfund.org or contact us on Facebook, National Fund for Foster Children. This is Columbus Perspective on the fan. Now, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. President Obama first declared January as National Human Trafficking Prevention Month in 2010. It's been marked every year since. The U.S. State Department says the goal is to raise awareness about human trafficking and educate the public about how to identify and prevent this crime. Here in Ohio, efforts are underway on the state and local levels, and it's needed. State Representative Cindy Abrams says Ohio ranks fourth in the nation for human trafficking. Abrams co-sponsored House Bill 230 to crack down on drug and human trafficking. It would increase penalties for drug trafficking, create the offense of participating participating in an organization for trafficking people and make that a first-degree felony. In December, the bill passed in the House Homeland Security Committee and now goes to the full House. Police officers know right now that where you have drugs, you have sex trafficking, where you have drug and sex, you have guns. I mean, everything's all related, sadly. It's devastating to see the abuse that's involved um, mentally, physically, and again, I mean, nobody wants to um, sell themselves. The bill comes at a time when the Salvation Army of Central Ohio is helping an increasing number of human trafficking survivors. Since 2007, the nonprofit's anti-human trafficking program has been helping people escape that life. In 2022, the program helped 511 survivors. Last year, it helped 850. Much more on the problem and the Salvation Army's program coming up in just a minute with my guest. On the law enforcement side now, here's one example of what's being done. On January 6th, Ohio Attorney General Dados announced the indictments of six members of an alleged crime ring in Columbus. They face a combined 124 felony charges, some including murder and human trafficking. The indictments follow an investigation by the Central Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force. Attorney General Dave Yost also created the Human Trafficking Initiative in his office with the goal of ending labor and sex trafficking in the state. According to the Attorney General's website, the initiative builds awareness, empowers Ohioans to take action in their communities, strengthens victim services throughout the state, and ensures that traffickers and johns are brought to justice. The AG's office also holds an annual human trafficking summit.
Also, a new place of hope is now home to human trafficking survivors in Columbus. Harriet's Hope Supportive Housing Community opened just after Thanksgiving. It has 52 apartments for human trafficking survivors. It provides a range of services, including medical and mental health care, addiction recovery services, housing, of course, as well as job skills training. Public and private partners made the $15.6 million facility possible. Its location is undisclosed for the safety of the people who live there. It's named in honor of abolitionist Harriet Tubman, who helped so many people escape slavery. The Salvation Army of Central Ohio provides intake and case management services for Harriet's Hope. That's on top of the many services it provides through its anti-human trafficking program, which I mentioned has been around since 2007. Joining me now is Salvation Army of Central Ohio Anti-Human Trafficking Program Director Michelle Hannon. Michelle, thank you for joining mm -hmm. me this morning. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk about this, this issue, especially in light of it being Human Trafficking Awareness Month. I wanted to start there, actually. How important is it to have this mm -hmm. Prevention and Awareness Month? Mm -hmm. I think something we've learned over the now about 17 years we've been doing this work is that... Uh, the, one of the, the most important aspects in, in helping to identify and support survivors of trafficking is general public awareness. Um, it's been a crime that, uh, although it's only been criminalized at the federal level since 2000, has certainly been with us for much, much longer than that. And it's really been something that has been, in a lot of ways, right in front of us. And it, it we rely um, so much on the general public and um, key professions and just citizens in general being aware of this crime in order to bring, you know, to really bring uh, tips to light and to uh, to kind of help to create those pathways out of exploitation for people. How big is the human trafficking problem here in central Ohio? Mm -hmm. you, you know, human trafficking is one of those issues that is really complicated uh, to define in terms of hard numbers, uh, partly because it is a crime that hides uh, in plain sight, but it's been very much um, under-identified uh, even since we've had very robust efforts. So what does the Salvation yes. Army's anti-human trafficking program do? Sure, yes. Yeah. So, so we wear uh, uh, a number of different hats here in Central Ohio. We serve a 14-county area. And uh, one of the great privileges we've had is that we have, since 2007, coordinated the Central Ohio Reach and Restore Coalition, which brings together uh, over 100 organizations in Central Ohio that are working together around this issue um, and on a lot of different levels, raising public awareness, uh, building a network of services for survivors so that when people are identified, they have real pathways out of exploitation, working around um, helping to support strong policies and laws. So uh, it's been, uh, it's a, it's just a, a real blessing to have the, the um, to be able to work with this great network of advocates around Central Ohio. So that's kind of one of our one of our yeah. roles. And then within our network here, we um, we provide a number of different services directly to survivors. So in our 14 counties, we operate the 24-hour human trafficking hotline, uh, which means that um, whether it's an individual calling on their own behalf or uh, for example, it could be a social worker in an emergency room, or it could be a teacher or, you know, anyone who might be calling on behalf of someone they think has been trafficked. So those calls uh, initially will go straight to the National Human, Tra Human Trafficking Hotline, and then will come 
there immediately to a person on our team here. So we, we both take those calls and do phone triage, but also can respond in person to support the person in the situation. And we'll get um, into more specifics exactly what happens like mm -hmm. at your office. But I, first of all, how mm -hmm. do victims or survivors mm -hmm. end up coming to you or, or how do you find them? Who are they? Sure, yeah, yeah. It has changed quite a bit um, as our communities have gotten better at identifying and supporting survivors. So uh, certainly a lot of people direct refer into our program. Uh, we partner with the Central Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force. Uh, so the uh, survivors that are identified through law enforcement investigations uh, engage with a member of our staff right there with the task force to help support them through that process. Um, just the coalition in general, community partners make referrals. So we uh, we work hard to build those bridges so that uh, really the community is equipped to identify and and uh, and make those linkages. So um, so a lot of those referrals might come through the hotline. They may come directly to our office. It might come through law enforcement. And do you do, you um, do people, street outreach as well? We do. Yes. So we are um, one of several organizations that do street outreach. Um, on a weekly basis. And we also offer a drop-in center program. So for those who are being um, trafficked in sex trafficking, especially um, involved in that street level exploitation, um, that's a direct outreach to connect with them and then to kind of bridge uh, bridge that gap into, into more robust services. Now your anti-trafficking hub at the Salvation Army facility, mm -hmm. um, it's mm -hmm. a, a room that's set aside for this specifically, and I think it's only been mm -hmm. you know, less than a year now that that's been in place, but what do you mm -hmm. do in that yeah. space? Right, absolutely. So this is a place now that um, when we um, identify, so many different reasons, many, many different uses. So for folks, uh, when we're providing a hotline response, if we are able to help someone get to our office, it is a safe place where they can engage with services, but also have their basic needs met. So we have basic needs support. They can have a meal in this space. Um, we can link to resources. And it's just a, a kind of a, a comforting, quiet place to uh, to work on those next steps. Mm -hmm. um, so we also use this space uh, uh, daily for meeting with people who are engaged in our ongoing case management services. So usually um, at any given time between um, 100 and 150 individuals are working with um, a staff member on an ongoing basis to build stability in their lives. And so that might mean that um, we are helping them link to, um, to trauma services, to legal representation, that we might be helping with family reunification. So to kind of whatever their goals are and whatever helps them build stability in their life, we're working with them um, in that way. We do a lot of that work in the community yeah. uh, where our folks are located, but also we're able to use the hub for for that as well. And then also it's a space where we uh, are conducting some of our intake interviews for Harriet's Hope okay. for the housing community. Yeah, in 2022, I mentioned the program helped 511 survivors, mm -hmm. then 850 mm -hmm. over the last mm -hmm. year. Um, we just yes. have a little bit of time left, Michelle, but any idea on why there was that increase? Yeah. I think uh, some of it, it, we, when public awareness increases, we always see an increase, which is why this kind of conversation is so important. Uh, we, we see a direct response after these kinds of, of these conversations of people coming forward. So I think uh, some of it speaks to the level of awareness in the community. Uh, some of it um, speaks to, I think, honestly, the Harriet's Hope 
um, housing community, I think has made um, a real difference in people coming forward because it's a real, um, it's a, it's a support that actually can provide people very concrete steps towards stability. And it's easier to come forward um, and to engage in services when you know that there is a very real pathway, if that makes sense. So I think it has literally created hope for people. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think we've seen a lot of people come forward with interest in that as well. Very appropriately named, isn't it? After mm -hmm. a great yes. abolitionist and having that word hope in it. Yes. Michelle, keep up the good work with you and, and all of your uh, staff there mm -hmm. at the Salvation Army and these coalitions you're talking about mm -hmm. that have been built around the area and to tackle this very serious problem. So thank you for mm -hmm. your time as well. Thank you so much. Now, if you or someone you know is a victim of human trafficking, you can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 888-373-7888. That's 888-373-7888. Thinking of buying a home? The Ohio Housing Finance Agency can help. We have programs designed to help make home ownership part of your future. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency's Ohio Heroes, Grants for Grads, and your choice down payment assistance programs are all designed to help make purchasing a home affordable. To learn more, visit myohiohome.org. Sponsored by the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. I love this song. I love nachos. Loving everything? You might be buzzed. You know what I'd love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzz warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Overcoming drug addiction was difficult. But I found the path to recovery that worked for me. The road to recovery is different for everyone. Find the path that works for you. Learn more at cdc.gov stopoverdose. Parenting is hard. Technology can make it harder. The Family Media Plan developed by the American Academy of Pediatrics helps make it easier. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan to create the media plan that's right for your family. Whether you make a full plan or just choose a few parts that matter the most to your family, healthychildren.org forward slash media plan is an easy-to-use tool that will help your family set media priorities and create healthy digital habits in line with your family's values. You'll also get practical tips to help make the plan work. And you can come back to revise your plan as often as you need to, like at the beginning of each school year or during summer and holiday breaks. Raising kids in the age of screens is easier when you have a plan. Go to HealthyChildren.org forward slash media plan and make your plan today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Political reporter Doug Petcash recently talked with University of Cincinnati political science professor Dr. David Niven about what's next now that both Ohio's House and Senate have voted to override Governor DeWine's veto of House Bill 68, banning gender-affirming health care for minors and blocking transgender athletes from playing girls' and women's sports. Here's more from Face the State, courtesy of 10TV. What do you expect? Is it going to go pretty much straight to the courts? <clears throat> well, there will certainly be court challenges at multiple levels. There'll be court challenges regarding the medical care. And, you know, we've seen with regard to reproductive rights, you know, that, you know, set of standards was challenged in the courts and was on hold even when Ohioans went to the polls. So that will be changed. We've seen in other states some judges throw out similar laws because of the interference with medical care, medical need. 
the athletic part of it, you know, the banning from high school sports is going to be harder to challenge in the courts, but it is so micro-specific. It's almost a bill for one person, which is literally how many athletes would have been affected in the most recent data. Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned, I was going to ask, is there anything we can take away from the other 22 or 23 states that have passed similar legislation? Well, a lot of this comes down to the very specific nature of state law and the state constitution. Okay. And so, you know, there isn't one overarching, you know, uh, premise here that's going to affect this. But the reproductive health rights that Ohioans put into the state constitution are going to come into play. And, and ultimately, what's stunning about this sort of turn of events is the governor vetoing this and then the governor not you know, being able to find even a single ally in the Republican Party to stand with him on this side. Yeah, he kind of went on a, on his own island on this one, kind of off the coast of the Republican mainland. Um, why do you think he did that? You know, I think, and keep in mind the history of Mike DeWine, he, he was something of a moderate in his first political life before he kind of rebranded himself as more conservative. But I think it was because he actually saw the people involved. He spent a few weeks before he made his decision listening to people. And, you know, when he is actually in a room with people, He's persuadable. He'll listen. He's affected by human stories. We've seen this before. He came out very strong for gun violence protection legislation when he was in the room or in, in this case in you know, the crowd with people who were directly affected. I think he's somebody who listens, but then the larger push of his party goes directly against those moves. And speaking of that, you have, you know, the ticket, if you'll call it that, the Governor DeWine, Lieutenant Governor John Husted ticket. Governor DeWine vetoed the bill. Lieutenant Governor Husted came out in support mm -hmm. of the bill. Should we read anything into the fact that, you know, the, 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 the head of the state and then his deputy have different opinions on this? Well, I think Houston is trying to separate himself out for a future run for governor. But it's a very difficult, you know, narrow path to walk. And we saw this with Mike Pence, and we've seen this in history before. When number twos try and separate themselves from their running mates, you know, they run the very risk of losing the support of the person they ran with. And that's certainly what we saw with Mike Pence. He didn't grow on Trump's support. He just, you know, lost all of it. And Houston is looking to position himself as a much more fire-breathing conservative candidate than he had been in his past or than Mike DeWine is right now. Getting back to the General Assembly, um, how is the productivity of the 135th General Assembly, historically speaking? It is epically low. It is, as far back as we have records, it is the least productive General Assembly that we've ever seen. And ironically, the reason for that is Republicans have such a large supermajority. They can do anything they want. And what they've chosen to do is go to war with themselves. So in the Ohio House, there's a Republican caucus, and then there's a second Republican caucus. And they spend most of their time fighting each other rather than passing bills. And it really is one of those be careful what you wish for kind of scenarios. They wanted as many seats as they possibly could get. They got that and then it stopped them in their own tracks. It seems not uncommon actually uh, in states where there is mm -hmm. there are large Republican majorities or probably if there's a large Democratic majority as well that you end up 
having that kind of infighting within the, the party itself. This is a little bit more profound. I mean, you might have you know a more liberal or more conservative caucus, or in Republican sides, a conservative caucus and an even more conservative caucus. But what's different is how personal this is. You know, they fought over who was going to be the House Speaker, and they have not moved on from that one iota. It's it's a mini version of what we see in the Congress, where the Republicans obviously fought again and again over Speaker. And, you know, it, it really is a question of priorities. One side is very much culture war first all the time, and the other is a little bit more oriented toward governing questions. Um, with this being an election year, too, uh, what do you expect from the legislature in terms of productivity mm -hmm. once again, considering that... Uh, you know, a lot of them have to run again. Well, it is an election year, but, you know, what's interesting is an awful lot of these House members are being primaried by, you know, by folks on the other side of their own party. So the idea that they're going to be battling each other is not going away. In fact, it'll probably only get more intense, but that primary is in March. So, you know, there'll still be an awful lot of time left in the session after we know who's still standing and who isn't. It's too much time to be a lame duck session. Though. Well, right. Right. I mean, there's an awful lot of opportunity for them. The question is, can they sort of move past the, you know, can they move to a healing process and then get back to business, or will they just ramp up their attacks on each other? Um, you know, we've seen the big social issues. The voters decided the abortion <laughs> question. Now the Republicans are deciding the transgender health care and women's, women in sports, uh, women's sports bill. Um, are we going to see more of these, you know, cultural or social issues coming up, or now that some of these are kind of being dealt with, will it get back to those governing issues that people right. do care about, like right. fighting crime, taxes, affordable housing, and whatnot? Well, that's the irony of all this. You know, what they have done is not terribly popular. What they have done is far more conservative than where the average Ohioan is. But that's where the caucus is. That's where their appetite is. One of the big bills they're pushing is, you know, a sort of limitation on Ohio's colleges and universities and trying to sort of force them down a, a different path. Um, that the conservatives in the legislature find a little bit more attractive. So that's certainly going to come up. Yes, uh, that that is uh, the DEI question, right, right. as well as there's the bathroom bill that right. is still yeah. in the We're in not the done with that. As right. well. This is also a big year for the ca uh, capital right. budget. And, you know, I've had some lawmakers talk about, you know, really kind of zeroing in mm -hmm. on that after the election. Right. I mean, one thing that could bring them together is building stuff. You know, yeah. Everybody wants things built in their district. There's an awful lot of opportunity, you know, roads, buildings, you know, the capital budget is usually something that's a little bit less contentious because it's you know, it's literally physical manifestation of what people want to see happen. All right. Dr. David Niven with the University of Cincinnati. Thank you, sir, for your time and your, your, uh, your expertise on these issues. Thank My you. pleasure. All right. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family, my weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. Every 40 seconds, a child is reported missing. That's 2,000 children every single day. It's a heart-wrenching reality that we can no longer ignore. Find the Children is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping find missing kids. You can be a part of their mission by donating your unwanted vehicle, running or not. Call 1-800-294-8000.
0222. We guarantee that you will receive the maximum tax deduction. We provide fast, free pickup with 24-hour response. Call 1-800-294-0222. Find the Children provides crucial resources to help find missing children and educational materials to teach kids how to recognize and avoid predators. Our recovery programs have a proven track record of reuniting kids with their families. It's time to act. Donate your unwanted or unused car. Help us build a world where every child is safe. Pick up the phone and call 1-800-294-0222. Together, we can bring these kids home safely. This advertisement was paid for in partnership with Cars R Us and Find the Children. When you take a walk around your neighborhood and notice all the things that make it feel like home, like all the houses lie neatly together in a row, or your neighbor, Miss Rita, who always waves at you when you drive down the street, or that movie theater in the strip mall that might look a little worn down, but has the best popcorn you've ever tasted. One thing might be a little harder to notice because somewhere tucked in that neat row of houses is hunger. It could be your next door neighbor or your coworker or your daughter's friend from school because over 30 million Americans don't know where their next meal is coming from. Hunger lives in neighborhoods all around us but it doesn't have to. Together, we can provide a billion meals by 2030 because everyone should be welcome at the table. Learn more at nourishingneighbors.com. Let's break the cycle of hunger together. One in four Americans today are living with a disability. I'm one of them. I care deeply about creating a world we can all fully participate in, free from stigma, misperceptions, and barriers. And we've got a trusted ally on our side, an organization we can rely on, Easter Seals. Rooted in communities nationwide, Easter Seals helps empower millions of people, regardless of age or disability, through its life-changing services and powerful advocacy. Today and every day, Easter Seals is leading the way to full equity, inclusion, and access to healthcare, employment, and education for people with disabilities, families, and communities. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Learn more and get involved at EasterSeals.com. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Funding is running out for a popular federal government internet service discount. If that happens, it will affect more than a million low-income households in Ohio who rely on the Affordable Connectivity Program to help pay for their high-speed internet service. Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance's office says funding is projected to run out in April. But Congress is working to extend it. Senator Vance and Vermont Democrat Peter Welch introduced the bipartisan Affordable Connectivity Program extension. Extension Act on January 10th. It would provide $7 billion to continue the monthly discounts administered by the Federal Communications Commission. The discount is up to $30 per month for most households, or $75 for those living on tribal lands. More than 22 million American households, including 1.1 million in Ohio, qualify and are enrolled in the program. In a statement, Senator Vance said, We must ensure low-income families all across Ohio, from our bustling cities to the most rural parts of Appalachia, aren't cut off from the online banking, schooling, and connectivity services they need. Ohio's Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown is hopeful the legislation will pass. 
We know it works. We know it's mattered for affordability of high-speed Internet, and um, we'll continue to fight for it. I, I don't know its future. You never really know, but we've got to work on it until we get it. Households earning up to 200% of federal poverty guidelines qualify for the ACP discount. Here are a few examples. For a single person, that's slightly more than $29,000 a year. For a family of four, it's up to $60,000. And for a family of eight, the household income can be up to $101,000. Someone can also qualify if they or a dependent use government programs, including Medicaid, SNAP, WIC, and several others. The federal government says the program will stop taking new applications one minute before midnight on February 7th. There is no word on whether that could change if Congress passes legislation to extend the program. We have a link with information on the qualifications and how to apply for a discount in this story on 10tv.com. Again, that's Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs show, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1, The Fan.